Ron Christian from the Sussex talking about counterfactual computational variables and primes. Thanks everyone for coming. Um, I guess there, when you have a lot of ideas and you only have 20 minutes, I guess there are two ways to deal with that. One is to water your ideas down so that everybody understands it perfectly clearly, but what they understand is a watered down idea. And the other way is to just go really, really fast through the ideas in all their detail. And you see, you get an impressionistic idea of, or understanding of, of what I'm saying, but you actually get an impressionistic understanding of really what I want to say. So I'm going to try to do the fast one. So don't worry if you can't follow everything. Um, you'll get at least some idea of what I'm on about. Um, so an outline, what I'm going to be looking at is a particular argument against uh, computational explanations of consciousness from uh, Mark Bishop. And I, my response to his argument will be that we should acknowledge the counterfactual nature of physical states, that this is essential to physical states and in particular causation, and that does away with his argument. But it provides an opportunity to segue to something I think is a little more positive, a little more interesting, um, a different way of thinking about how one might give a computational explanation of, say, perceptual experience um, by appealing to the counterfactual nature of states explicitly. And so I think from that kind of meditation, you can come up with, um, I, I don't know what to call it, so I'll call it an imagination-based architecture um, that would uh, handle some of the kind of data that inactivists are trying to address, uh, for instance, change blindness. So you can have a representationalist theory that, uh, nevertheless, and even an inactivist can be happy with, I think, at least as far as the data goes. Okay, so Mark Bishop's paper is called Dancing with Pixies, we'll see why later, but he poses a dilemma for computational explanations of consciousness, and there are two horns, as there usually are in a dilemma. Uh, the first horn is that you can either, in your computational attempt at computationally explaining consciousness, you can either use a weak or even non-causal notion of computation, or you can use a strong say, counterfactual involving notion of causation in your characterization of computational states. And he's going to turn that into a dilemma by showing that either of those notions of computation has problems. Um, on the weak notion of causation horn, um, there are familiar problems from uh, Searle and Putnam, we've seen uh, for, for a long time now that if you have a weak notion of causation, uh, use when you're trying to characterize what computational states are, then it turns out everything realizes every computation. And the reason why that's bad is that any claim that a particular computation is sufficient for consciousness would imply everything is conscious. It would imply panpsychism of the worst sort. Not just everything's conscious, but everything has every conscious state. So it's really, really a bad form of, uh, unattractive form of panpsychism. So, the way Mark Bishop puts it is that there will be phenomenal pixies everywhere. Um, that's why we have pixies. Uh, instead, Mark Bishop uh, realizes this, you could take, I think, the much more sensible notion of causation, um, one that doesn't imply that uh, every, every physical system realizes every computational state, but he thinks you're still going to have a problem. He thinks if you do that, you're going to violate the naturalist spirit of computational explanations by appealing to what he thinks are non-physical aspects of the, phys of the physical states that realize the computation. So I've, I think I'm going to skip through this. Um, I think it's maybe should be obvious. Well, I'm just going to skip through the rejecting the first horn. 
it's pretty widely agreed that that's not a good way of understanding what's going on in computation. Dave Chalmers and myself, back in 94, for instance, uh, showed that this weakly causal notion of computation really isn't what we mean by computation. Um, so instead, we have the second form. What's Mark Bishop's argument against a strong notion of causation in order to characterize computational states? Well, note that in this notion of what computation is, the identity of a computational state will not depend just on its actual causal relations, the thing that caused it, the thing that it causes, but, but also it will depend on the causal effects such as the output or successor state a state would have were it to receive different input. So that's a counterfactual property of the physical state, not just its actual um, causal relations. Sorry if I'm, am I in the way of, maybe this will come back on later and I can go back to the hands free mode. But, um, so Bishop's idea is that, look, if you uh, adopt this strongly causal view of computation, you avoid Searle and Putnam's uh, panpsychism problems but you would face new problems that he adapts from Chalmers' fading qualia and suddenly disappearing qualia arguments. So how does that work? Well, he constructs a thought experiment involving two robots, R1 and R2. There they are. Now, R1 is controlled by a program that replicates the fine-grained functional organization of some system, let's say a human being, known to have phenomenal states. Whereas R, uh, well, so therefore a particular run of R1 with a certain set of inputs, let's call them I, will result in an actual sequence of behaviors B and will also uh, have some type of phenomenal experience uh, during that run. Now R2 is from the outside just like R1. It behaves just like R1 does on that particular run. And as a matter of fact, you could even say it goes through the same computational states on this particular run that R1 goes through on this particular run. But the reason why it does that is unlike R1, which might be controlled by an AI program and therefore produces this particular sequence of computational states because of computation, actually computing those states, um, uh, R2 instead might just have been hardwired to go through that sequence of physical states and therefore that sequence of computational states independently of the input. So um, R1 goes through this sequence of states by hard work, by hard computational work, figuring out what state to go into next con uh, through, by considering different conditionals and what the input's like, whereas R2 just is hardwired to go through, that se through the same sequence of states, computational states. So that's the difference between a branching finite, finite state automaton. R1 is a branching finite state automaton, and in each computational state here, there's a branch. If the input is one kind of thing, go into that state. If the input's another kind of, different kind of input, go into that state. That's um, uh, a branching finite state automaton. That's R1. Whereas actually, R2 is just a non-branching finite state automaton. It goes through the same states, in some sense, uh, as uh, R1 goes through on a particular trace, um, but uh, these states are not, uh, don't actually have any counterfactual properties. It would have gone through those states no matter what the input had been. Now, I think most computationalists would just say, look, those aren't the same computational states. A computational state is defined in terms of its counterfactual properties, in terms of its branchiness. And Mark knows that. 
Um, he's a computer scientist. So um, he's just going to make the point here about, okay, what, what, what is really the difference between these two types of systems? So note that the computationalist must, must conclude that since, um, uh, even though the behavior of these two robots, R1 and R2, in this particular run, even though the behavior is identical, the computationalist wants to say that only R1 has phenomenal experience because only R1 is really implementing the computation that the computationalist says is necessary for a phenomenal experience, or not, no, sorry, sufficient for a phenomenal experience, and uh, R2 isn't implementing such a computation. Um, now, what's wrong with that? I think a computationalist would agree so far. Well, Mark's going to try and generate some of these uh, charmers like disappearing qualia and suddenly feeding quality, qualia and suddenly disappearing qualia arguments by transforming R1 into R2 branch by branch. He's going to prune these counterfactual branches that we saw from R1 one by one until he reaches R2. So you have a sequence of robots, if you like, R1 sub 1, R1 sub 2, R1 sub n, where n is the last counterfactual link has been removed and you just have, when you have R1 sub n, you actually have R2. So it's going to be computationally formally identical with R2. And so for a computationalist, R1 sub n, the one that's had all its uh, counterfactual branch branches removed, it will be therefore a non-experiencer, just like R2 is, because it's formally identical to R2. So what's the problem here? Well, Bishop asks, what happens to the phenomenology in this transformation? If you incrementally remove these counterfactual links, either the experience, we know there's experience in one case, no experience in the other case, so either the experience is going to fade, or there's going to be some abrupt switch at some point from qualia or experience to no qualia. Now, I'm not so sure that that's, those are the only two options. For instance, there might be several space discrete transitions. You might have this type of phenomenal experience and a lower kind of experience after a certain number of links are pruned, and then after a certain more, after five more are pruned, you get to a different kind of experience, and eventually, um, yeah, you, you have a suddenly disappearing qualia, but only after going through some transformations there. But anyway, let's, let's let that pass. Let's ha let him have his uh, dilemma here. Um, so we can rule out the first horn, or Bishop says, uh, suddenly disappearing qualia are not going to be um, the fan, uh, the computationalist isn't going to like to embrace this horn. It would imply that the removal of one of these counterfactual branches is sufficient to remove all of phenomenal experience. And uh, for, I mean, at least Bishop thinks that that's something that's unattractive to the computationalist. I'm not really convinced that a computationalist has to be bothered by that. Maybe you could just bite the bullet and say, well, yeah, I guess that's, that's how things have to be. But again, I'm going to grant uh, Bishop that for the sake of argument. Instead, I'm going to look at how he proceeds for the, when he addresses the other horn, the fading qualia. What's odd is that he doesn't actually come up with an argument against the fading qualia um, option why it should be unacceptable for a computationalist, but instead he just gives a general argument against computationalism. He says the computationalist position implies the existence of a system whose phenomenal experience is contingent upon what he calls non-physical interactions with sections of its control program that are not executed. And he thinks that's a form of dualism. That is, the computationalist, he claims, is saying that this machine's uh, phenomenal experience depends on states that aren't actually actualized right now, only on counterfactual states, counterfactual relations to those states. 
So he says, hence, if phenomenal states are purely physical phenomena, then R1 and R2 have to be the same, because they only differ in their counterfactual properties, and he thinks the counterfactual properties of a system are not physical. Well, I just think this argument is too strong. And one warning, I mean, sorry, I think this argument doesn't work. And one warning that it doesn't work is that it's too strong. Um, it proves too much. If Bishop were right, I think he would have to say that all computational explanations of anything, not just consciousness, would not be physicalistic. Um, you could never have uh, a physicalistic computational explanation, even of computers. So I think that's a warning sign. But that's, that's not my knockdown argument against him. It's just a sign something's gone wrong. That just seems a little crazy. Um, I think what he's done is misunderstood the nature of the physical. He's claiming that differences in counterfactual behavior do not constitute physical differences, whereas um, I, well, I think, you know, presumably it's by virtue of some physical difference between a state of the nth R1 robot and the corresponding state of the n plus 1 R1 robot that gives the former a counterfactual property that the latter, ha that the latter lacks. Um, you know, there's got to be some physical difference between them, it seems. So um, I I'm claiming that in order to delete one of those links, in order to delete the nth, say, transition, you have to physically alter R1. The, the, you have to physically alter the, the robot, um, its control program, uh, in some physical way. So these aren't just non-physical aspects. It wouldn't, if you didn't physically change the machine, its counterfactual properties would be exactly the same as before. So I think despite Bishop's claim, if R1 and R2 differ in their counterfactual formal properties, they must differ in their physical properties. That is, causal properties, no surprise here, even the counterfactual aspects of causality, I think, supervene on physical properties. And I think that's a pretty uncontentious claim. Now. I, how, how am I doing for time? Um, have a little, five, let's see, in five minutes plus 15 seconds. Oh, okay. Um, so that's so much for Bishop's argument. I wanted to get something to something positive, and this is going to be even more rushed. Um, but just to give you a flavor of what, what I'm interested in here, um, I think you can use this emphasis. Maybe he's drawn our attention to the role that counterfactual aspects of computational states play. And that's, that's good. Um, it can lead us to a new kind of, uh, or an alternative way of looking at computational architectures for consciousness. Um, so I'm segueing to this, uh, supposedly, segueing to this um, other aspect of the talk. Um, I think typically, computationalist theories do kind of make the mistake that, that Bishop's talking about. They just focus on, um, if they're trying to explain, say, perceptual phenomenal content, they'll just try to map that to a, current, uh, a particular computational state only by virtue of that state's actual causal relations and not its counterfactual ones. So like what caused it or what behavior does it give rise to? I think uh, by, by responding to Bishop's argument, you're reminded that actually that's not the only, uh, it's the counterfactual aspects of a state that are crucial for defining a state's identity. So maybe they should play a role in explaining or naturalizing conscious, uh, say, perceptual content. So how can you do that? Well, uh, in particular, how could you use it to respond to uh, some of the issues um, related uh, to, well, let me, <laughs> related to perception that we've called the grand illusion? Um, for instance, some would argue that they'd have this 
um, simplistic, actualist notion of computational explanations of consciousness, they would say, look, the change blindness data, apologies for those who don't know what those, what those data are, I'm just going to have to assume it. They show that only foveal information has an effect on our perceptual state. There's all this other information, but it's not affecting your experience um, because you don't notice changes in that non-foveal area, for instance. Thus, they say, our perceptual experience is only of the foveated world. They're implicitly assuming that this actualist notion of how a computationalist explanation would proceed. And any appearance that anything else is experienced, they say, is incorrect. Well, if we take counterfactuals seriously, I think we can save a, a computational explanation of consciousness and yet avoid the grand illusion conclusion. Um, if you place an emphasis on the counterfactual aspects of states, then you can avoid the grand illusion result by, um, well, for instance, do this. You say the phenomenological experience, uh, the ph phenomenological state corresponding to a given computational state isn't just determined by the current foveal input, but it's also determined by the foveal input that system would expect to have if it were to engage in certain kinds of movement. For instance, moving the eye in a particular direction. So right now, a comp my computational system is getting foveal information, but I also have all kinds of expectations about what kind of foveal information I would get if I were to look in this part of the room or that part of the room or look up or look down. And my current experience isn't just given by the actual causal relations, it's also given by the counterfactual expected um, contents that I, I, the contents I would expect to have were I to make particular movements. And so this is, you can call this an imagination-based computational architecture if you like. You can realize these expectations in even a simple feed-forward network, although for reasons I can't go into here, you'll probably want uh, something a little more complex, at least a recurrent network. The, in, in this idea, the model would be updated only in response to foveal information change. So if there's a change over here and I'm not foveating over there, then my model, my expectation of what I would see were I to move my eyes over there isn't updated. If, however, um, someone uh, uh, takes the phone off the table while I'm foveating on it, foveating on that area, then I will update my model. I'll no longer have an expectation to see a phone there. I'll now have an expectation to see uh, a blank table. So, um, the explanation of the change blindness data then proceeds um, by saying, you know, look at, look at the computational system, consider the system after an element of the scene has been changed, but before the system actually foveates on that part of the scene. Well, the expectations will be out of date. The expectations of that system will still be uh, of the world before the change. And, according to the IBA approach, that actually constitutes current experience. What I expect to see when I move my eyes there is actually part of my current experience now. So that counterfactual state um, is playing a role in my experience, and thus no change is detected or experienced, no grand illusion. That's just exactly what, you know, our experience is just what it seems. Um, and I could go into some elaborations, but I won't. There's no time. I assume there's no time. You're standing up. Um, so if you want to hear about those, you can talk to me uh, in person. Um, I just want to finish with an announcement or two. We've got a job going in my department, so if you're interested, email me, uh, particularly philosophers of AI and cognitive science. And also, if you're interested in machine consciousness, as this talk was about, then uh, talk to me about a conference in Greece in October. We're still accepting admission, uh, submissions for that. So thanks for your attention.